Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We are so glad you are joining us for episode 125. Uh, this is Sunday, May 9th. We are recording at 1 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. I am your host, Terry Plucknett. Joining me are Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. How goes it this wonderful Sunday, guys? I feel like I'm about two feet taller than Todd. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. I always feel like my head is small when we when we do this, just because I feel like I'm further back than everything else. But yes, Todd is definitely shorter. However, Todd does feature our uh, our featured topic behind him in in his not not digital but looks digital background that he always has. I think we need a tour of all the movie posters you have, Todd. I think that should be an episode. <laughs> Maybe I'll get to all of them at some point. <laughs> There's got to be some good stories behind them. Like, was this at the pawn shop, or where where do you find this one? Well, they were all from the same place. It was like a movie madness going out of going uh out of business and they just sold other posters for like two dollars yeah so you were like down 30. you were down here weren't you <laughs> yeah yeah i was yeah. yeah i was in hillsborough that's where i got all all mine too movie madness went out of business and they yeah and all their so posters all were day, like dvd available at such such date not like the release date in theaters mm-hmm. or anything now do you discriminate against movies you don't like or do you just grab like whatever well i mean i try to make it somewhat related to something but i i mean yeah, the, when I bought them, yeah, they, I mean, I, I got all movies that I liked, or just ones that look cool. Yeah, that's what I went for, too. Either movies I liked or the posters look cool. Yeah, see, I'm more like the posters look cool kind of person, because generally the movies I like, they don't even really have available movie posters for. But, you know, it. I have a really cool poster of the movie hanabi or fireworks in my classroom that has sometimes been on this podcast that i had to uh illegally cross uh international borders with maybe not illegally but i like to think so and that that was 50 dollars or like 50 euro it was worth it though yes well and then you, you still have the uh the uh dvd of the french film you bought in france right yeah, and curiously enough, I actually now have a Region 1 copy of it as well. So oh. if anyone wants to check out the Lucille Hadzivalig uh, movie with an uh, early performance of Marion Cotillard, uh, I have a copy of the movie Innocence. Two copies, actually. Mm-hmm. And, and the one you bought in France doesn't even have English subtitles. That's correct. Yeah, that's when I was a little uh, ambitious and thought that I could just uh, speak French. <laughs> you know, I took four years of French in high school just because I like French movies good reason to take a language it is it is all right well zach what are you drinking today i'm having some agua fria very nice very nice return of the starbucks cup todd what do you got i have a terry staple the the pub beer pub Mm. beer very nice i actually have like a case of that in the fridge downstairs but that's not what i'm going with i have oh i forgot to so i have pelican brewing is a is a popular brewery in oregon and uh, they collaborated with the uh, the Portland women's soccer team, the Portland Thorns, for their hazy IPA, and it's called Slide Tackle. So, there. The Slide Tackle hazy IPA. And 
the Rose City, so they're the Portland Thorns. So, get it, get it. All right. Well, let's get into um, to what we've been watching. We have we have a busy show as we're gonna go through what we've been watching this week and uh, all of our kind of gimmick reviews. Then we have a come to the stable of a classic film that none of us had seen uh, that we're gonna talk about before we uh, deep dive that lovely yellow poster behind Todd's head uh, in honor of its fifteenth anniversary release this week or this uh, this year. So. Uh, let's start with the cager. All right. My review comes from 1981. As far as I can see, it's the first thing you ever acted in. It is the Don Meischer movie, The Best of Times, which uh, follows seven teenagers. And it's not actually even a movie. It's a TV pilot that was never aired, which evidently at some point IMDb translates into being a movie. So I had to include it at some point. Um, Nicholas Cage and Crispin Glover are the only two people I heard of in the cast. And uh, it's kind of fascinating to see them at this point in their careers, uh, at that point in their lives, probably the first thing they ever did. Um, the quality is atrocious. I mean, it, it has like lame sitcom stuff and really bad camera work, but the director had won like a dozen Emmys over his career directing stuff like the Oscars and the Olympics and stuff like that. So seeing him take on kind of a lame sitcom is a weird choice, I guess. Um, Crispin Glover is the main character, and he actually really fits in that kind of role. It's definitely the least creepy and most normal he's ever been. He's like a Zach Morris type character, and Nick Cage is like the jock. He he first appears. He's like bouncing around shirtless, saying he's Rocky, and so yeah. And that persona followed him for pretty much his whole career. Um, there's like random dance sequences and musical numbers. It, it seems like it was destined for Nickelodeon in the '90s or something. And there's like ads that pop up throughout the show and including in the opening credits, which I've never seen before. Maybe I just don't watch a lot of old sitcoms, but that was really bad. But Cage is in like rare form here. Like like he, he has one line where he's like, he's like, hey, if you look happy, people will think you're stupid. So how do I look? And it's like, yeah, that that's a total Cage line. You could have said that at any point. And it's, I mean, it's so bad that it's almost watchable. Like, it could have been, like, a cult classic type hit. And I, I never thought that this is the kind of nonsense I needed to watch. But, I mean, it's a it's a weird document for the cager because it's a... I, I don't even know how this ever got greenlit to start shooting. But uh, it is something. And, and it, it's kind of fascinating. And he was still Nicholas Coppola at the time. Uh, so, I guess I'm giving it two and a half stars. I did sort of enjoy it. Number 58 on the cager between Running with the Devil and the Sorcerer's Apprentice. So there you go. Knock that one out. Wow. Free on I mean, YouTube. If it, if it was a failed TV pilot, how long was it? It was like, I don't know. It was like 50 minutes or something. It was, okay. it was yeah, which is weird because it was a sitcom. So. How would how would you uh, rate uh, Nicholas Cage or Coppola's uh, musical skills? I remember we talked about he hasn't been cast as many musicians in the past. Well, he uh, he can dance for sure. Uh, you can't really, he never he doesn't ever sing by himself. It's more like a high school musical kind of like chorus line sort of. I don't know, but I mean it. He seems like he knows what he's doing. It'd be interesting if he ever did a musical. But yeah, I, this wasn't even on his page until like maybe in the last couple of years. Because I remember it, it always had Fast Times Ridgemont High as his first thing. And now this has popped up on a, on his page as well. Oh, interesting. 
I love the poster. The poster looks like the poster for being John Malkovich. Like it has Cage's <laughs> face just all over. It's like Malkovich, 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 Cage, Cage, Cage. That's what I feel like. Yeah, it's really funny. All right. Well, there's that one. The cager's out of the way. Now, Zach, take us into the Criterion Collection. Yeah, when you have to find your... Uh, if, if it hasn't been unearthed, except for the last five years, and you can only find it on YouTube for free, it's probably <laughs> some red flags there. Uh, the, criter the Criterion I watched this week is a director that um, got nominated for an Oscar this year. And uh, I say I'm an aficionado of his work, but I have quickly realized that I haven't seen um, as much of his work as I thought I did. And that filmmaker is Raman Barani. And the Criterion I watched this week is Man Push Cart, which was just released by Criterion um, this past year. Uh, this was Barani's first major um, movie in the United States. And of course, by major, I don't mean, you know, having Nicolas Cage in it. I mean, like shown at festivals and maybe shown at art house <laughs> theaters across the country if they were lucky. Um, Man Push Cart is uh, very much in the style of Chop Shop and uh, Goodbye Solo. It's this kind of gritty look at uh, the life of an immigrant named Ahmad, who's played in the movie by an actor named Ahmad Rosby. And he uh, operates a push cart in Manhattan. And uh, he's a Pakistani immigrant, but he speaks perfect English. And he seems fairly well adjusted to the United States. But of course, life is a struggle. He doesn't make that much money. Um, we kind of slowly find out fragments about his past, which is a little bit checkered. He has a son. He has a wife who died. There's a very brief flashback. There's some friction between him and the wife's family because they have custody of their child. Over the course of the movie, Ahmad meets uh, a another um, pushcart operator wh whose name is uh, Nomi. She is uh, Spanish. <coughs> She's played by Leticia Delora. Um, you know, like Chop Shop, there's not a whole lot of plot, I guess, in this movie. It's more just about the kind of day-to-day -day existence of this guy who, you know, is pretty solemn. He's usually pretty solitary. Um, there's a little bit of like latent racism and xenophobia in the movie, but it's more just about how, you know, at three o'clock every morning, this guy has to go and pull this cart, you know, across Lexington Avenue in Manhattan. And it seems like a really grueling, um, pretty, pretty horrible existence. Um, Barani, though, is always so good at finding levity in these situations and, and showing characters who are downcast, but maybe ha still have some sort of remnants of um, optimism about them. And uh, I think it's very much like companion piece to Chop Shop, which kind of also was set in New York City, although it was set in the Bronx. Um, the, the Criterion, um, the movie gets three and a half stars. I really enjoyed it. Um, the, the, what's interesting about the Criterion version, though, is it is the first film, but certainly not the last film, to be released with, as far as I can tell, a socially distant extra feature. Um, there is a uh, conversation between Raman Barani and Ahmad Razvi and one of the uh, assistant directors on the film, and they are socially distant from each other because it was shot in fall 2020. And that is a great segment because whether you like the movie or not, um, it, they, they talk quite a bit about um, the independent movie circuit in the early 2000s, how they really had to shoot this guerrilla style before you know, people like Sean Baker were using iPhones, but a lot of people didn't even realize they were in the movie because they were shooting in Manhattan, downtown Manhattan. And uh, Raman Barani had to learn how to use uh, Final Cut Pro from um, YouTube clips. So, uh, you know, kudos to that. That's awesome. Um, this is a really uh, awesome movie, Raman Barani. I, I still have not seen The White Tiger yet, uh, but uh, I'm a fan of his. I think he's a great filmmaker. And uh, this is definitely 
um, you know, a really cool indie movie from, from the mid-2000s. It doesn't really feel dated in a lot of ways. It feels kind of timeless, very much in that kind of, uh, you know, 2000s Italian neorealist tradition that he uh, was building on with uh, later Chop Shop and uh, Goodbye Solo. So cool movie, definitely worth checking out. Glad Criterion has uh, been releasing his work, as they've also done with Chop Shop. Yeah, that's a good one. I, that was yeah. back when he, he, like his first three movies that he made, starting with this one, I guess, because I haven't seen his uh, for his debut. But uh, the it, he was making really good movies with his first three. He kind of fell off recently, uh, starting with like that Zac Efron movie or whatever. But uh, And then this, Fahrenheit yeah. 451, which was, yeah, that, by that all was counts a disaster. Bad. Yeah, that was bad too. But yeah, I mean, Man, Man Push Card is really cool. I, I just heard him on a podcast saying how he... Uh, he was inspired by Bicycle Thieves when he made this movie and stuff like that. And you could definitely tell it. it, it, it this was a, right around the time I was first really getting into independent movies. And this uh, this was one of the ones I saw in the Spirit Awards. I was like, okay, I got to see that. And I sought it out as soon as I could. Yeah, in the conversation, the uh, Ahmad Razvi says that there's a scene in the movie where he's pulling the cart, which he says was absolutely like the hardest thing he's ever had to do. And uh, he falls over and he had a choice of whether to fall into a moving cab or move into the cart and damage the cart and maybe lose <laughs> his life. And he says that he his life flashed before his eyes and he didn't he didn't speak to Raman Barani for like a week after because he was so pissed off. It's kind of like that story about Uma Thurman and Quentin Tarantino on Kill Bill Volume 2 when she drove the car and crashed it. Like there's some real shit that happens, you know, with these movies that don't use CGI. So I guess there's something to be said for, you know, really putting yourself out there um, on the indie, making an indie movie. All right. All right. I have not seen that one. I have not. Um, I don't think I've seen any of, I mean, Barani's films, which I should probably fix soon. I need to see The White Tiger. Me All too. Right. So uh, my Oscar watch for this week, uh, it, it, it's a good segue coming out of Zach's because uh, this is also a part of the Criterion Collection. It was a movie uh, that I picked up from the from the library, and it was the Criterion copy that I got from the library. Uh, it was uh, nominated 10 years ago for Best Documentary. Uh, it was also uh, the German submission for foreign film, but it never got, it didn't get that nomination. It only got the documentary nomination. And this film is called Kina. It is a documentary uh, that pays tribute to the late German choreographer Pina Bausch. And it is written and directed by Wim Wenders. And uh, apparently Wim Wenders had been wanting to make this movie for about 20 years before he finally got it made. Uh, and one of the fascinating parts about uh, it getting made in 2011 is right after it was announced that it would be made, that um, Pina Bausch uh, found out that she had stage four cancer and actually died days before shooting for this movie started. And uh, so this movie instead of being a, a trip, you know, an honoring her career, it turned into a tribute uh, to her life. And what it is, is it is a, a series of, uh, of dance numbers of some of her more classic and famous uh, choreographed numbers that uh, her dancers recreate specifically for this movie. And uh, it, it's, it's a pretty good, uh, it, it's a pretty good movie. I, I mean, kind of, if this is your thing, uh, I kind of felt like after I saw like the first couple dance numbers, I didn't really need to watch the rest of the movie because I knew exactly what it was. Um, but I did. And uh, I it this type of dancing isn't really my thing. It's very, very interpretive. 
Um, and uh, yeah, I was kind of bored by it by the end of it, but I could appreciate it for what it was. I'm giving it two and a half stars. Uh, not my thing, but if uh, dancing like uh, dance numbers like this and very interpretive dances is, is uh, something you're interested in, it would be a fascinating watch for you. So, uh, yeah, Hina, nominated for Best Documentary 10 years ago. Okay, well, did you check out any of the Criterion's special features? That's the real question. I, I, I thought about it and then realized I didn't care enough to. But see, that's the brilliance of Criterion. Even if it's a bad movie, they're always interesting supplements. That's true. I, I still have it sitting downstairs. I could uh, I could go check out some of those special features. But uh, I haven't yet. I haven't yet. And Vim Benders is a really interesting guy. He, he He's always uh, pretty forthright on camera and usually has some pretty colorful stories to share. I, yeah, and th this is... As I... The first dance number, I'm like, okay, this is what type of dancing she did. Got it. And then it kind of splices in and out some uh, some segments of her actually running rehearsals of the original group practicing these dances, which was pretty cool too. But uh, but yeah, two and a half. I mean, if if I cared more, it'd be it'd be higher. <laughs> How would I mean, you? Oh, go ahead. How would you compare uh, Pina's uh, dance style to uh, Abigail Breslin in Little Miss Sunshine? Is, Ooh. is there overlap? Ooh. Are they working in similar genres? Is, would Grandpa have fit in as a choreographer on her uh, the, uh, dance troupe? Um, I, I would say no. Probably not. Because what he, Olive was doing was pretty experimental. I mean, let's be honest. It was, it was out there. He could definitely appreciate it, though. Um, yeah, I, I don't think he it would have been interesting to he, he probably would have liked it but for very different reasons <laughs> all right well there's uh what we've been watching now let's get into our come to the stable review and for that we are looking at a film that came out in 1959 uh starring frank sinatra and edward g robinson this is a movie called A Hole in the Head, directed by Frank Capra. Zach, I'm going to you first, because you're the one that suggested it. Tell us first why you suggested that we watch this movie, and then tell us all about it and what you thought. So as uh, we all know, we are big fans of, on this podcast of Uncut Gems. In fact, so much so that we could probably rename this podcast Almost Sideways Uncut. Or maybe that maybe that could be like... the. The directors, or like a maybe a maybe a, a patron version of our uh, podcast. Almost there we go. There, there we go. go. Anyway, um, <laughs> so apparently the Safdie brothers they did a they you know they did a lot of uh, uh, well anyway I was listening to a podcast I can't remember where it was it might have been on the Ringer and they talked about their love of this movie called A Hole in the Head with Frank Sinatra and I never heard this <laughs> before. Not only did they love this movie and had, and they had grown up with it, but they also said that it might have been like the single biggest influence on Uncut Gems. So, you know, you're thinking, really? I mean, we have to watch this movie, right? An obscure older movie that actually has some Oscar credibility. It won best song for the song High Hopes, which is uh, un unmistakably the most famous thing to come out of that movie. And it's got Frank Sinatra, Edward G. Robinson, uh, Thelma Ritter, very interesting cast. And it's Frank Capra's second to last movie. And so the movie stars Frank Sinatra as a character not too unlike uh, Howard. Uh, his name in this movie is Tony Mineta. And uh, like Howard, like the Adam Sandler character in Uncut Gems, he is someone who at the, very be at the beginning of the movie is facing um, debts and debt collectors. 
And uh, he also has some, um, shall we say, I guess, indulgent indulgence problems. Um, it's not so much like uh, high stakes sports gambling like uh, Howard, but uh, I guess it's a little bit unclear about why uh, Tony uh, has um, these money issues. But whatever, for whatever the reason, he's a, a he owns a hotel, and he also has a young son in the movie. Um, and uh, basically, what happens over the course of the movie is, it, like Uncut Gems, it's this maybe extended, you know, maybe seventy-two hour period in his life where he has to come up with, I believe, what five thousand dollars to pay off the. The uh, foreclosure that uh, has been placed on his uh, on his hotel, and so he brings in his brother, played by Edward G. Robinson, uh, apparently much older brother, uh, and he's married to Thelma Ritter, and he basically tries to beg them for cash. In the meantime, he has this mistress who's kind of kooky. She's played in the movie by uh, Carolyn Jones. I guess she's sort of like the stand-in for the Julia Fox character a little bit, but she never gets uh, the name Tony on her ass, unfortunately. Um, but and there's also no cameo appearance by the weekend. Uh, but you can see a little bit of similarities at the end of the movie, like at the end of Uncut Gems. There is a big sort of epiphany moment when Tony actually is able to recoup some of his losses in this moment of kind of grandiose, hyperkinetic uh, excitement and ecstasy, only to see it all kind of waste away. And uh, you know that the title "Hole in the Head" also could describe the end of uh, Uncut Gems, but it's uh, I think used in a very different context in this movie. Uh, this was a strange experience watching this movie. Um, I fell asleep several times in the first sixty minutes. It was very hard to watch, very uh, corny, and um, almost like TV sitcom in a way. In the way that they had all those characters in the hotel, there was a really kind of uh, saturine father knows best, leave it to Beaver dynamic between Frank Sinatra and his son in this movie. Um, his son in the movie uh, is like a basically a, a, a young Ronnie Howard knockoff. I hated their scenes. So I was prepared to kind of cast off this movie as more 50s schlock. However, once Keenan Wynn makes an appearance in this movie, and Keenan Wynn plays this former friend of the Frank Sinatra character who has actually made it big, and Frank Sinatra has this plan to basically construct a prototype for Dis what ends up being Disney World. Uh, once Keenan Wynn makes an appearance in this movie, this movie gains life. All right, it suddenly becomes interesting. They go to the dog track, they go to this party that he's running, and then kind of like the last 20 minutes of Uncut Gems, it kind of gets exciting in a way. Um, Keenan Wynn is the MVP of this movie. I hated pretty much every other piece of it, but it was kind of fun, undeniably fun watching this movie to see some of the parallels with Uncut Gems. <laughs> um, based on the Keenan Wynn character alone, I want to give this movie two and a half stars. I don't know if I really can. Just skip the first, skip the first hour, hour and a half. Just go to the end of it. That, that shit's exciting to watch, and uh, the movie gains gains some life. Capra uh, needs to get better pacing. with the, This movie is so slow, uh, but once it gets to that end point, it's, it's kind of fun to watch, and I don't entirely regret watching it because it did inspire um, the greatest movie of the 21st century, arguably. So, um, yeah, kudos to that, and uh, more power to the Safdie brothers for taking this obscure 50s movie and turning it into something great, you know, um, a half century later. All right. All right. Todd, where are you at with a hole in the head? Oh, I liked it more than Zach did. Uh, what I thought was weird is it's listed as a comedy, and I don't really think it necessarily is all that funny. Like, like I can't really figure out why it didn't go for more drama, because there is so much like that's built up and a lot to latch onto, but it plays for slapstick, which is kind of annoying. 
It does feel like a play, though. It is based on a play, and it, it doesn't. It didn't necessarily need to. Like, th there's imagination in the premise, but it stays inside, or it has like narration, and it just holds it back a little bit from being like a really good movie. Um, and yeah, seeing the uncut gems parallels is fun. Tony is totally the inspiration for Howard. He's basically like scum, but he has a really big heart, and he's in over his head and a degenerate. But he's so likable that you know everybody around him keeps giving him chance after chance. And Sinatra is really good at that. He's the best ever singer turned actor. Like he just oozes leading man appeal. And uh, this is his most stick manish role. He's like a swindler and a charming loser. Uh, I also really like, uh, I'm going to call him EGR, uh, Edward G. Robinson. Like he's, he was great in this and he, uh, he never got his due as an actor, unfortunately. I think he's one of the, one of the, the one of the great actors of that era. And uh, the kid, uh, Eddie Hodges, like he's the same as every other kid performance in the 50s. Uh, the only thing that isn't really dated about the movie is Thelma Ritter's character. Like she seems current. Like I feel like the Frau from Austin Powers could have played that role Ooh. like last year and it yeah. would have still worked. Yeah. Uh, the song, the song is corny when it comes up. I had no idea it was original to this movie or even any movie. Uh, I guess that deserves <laughs> a win because at the time, like that's when like the most the song most people had heard actually did win Oscars and like that nothing song that won this year. Um, the and, but this movie is flawed, but it is kind of infectious to watch. I I enjoyed it. Like like Zach said, Jerry, the character of Jerry is really good. Jerry and Doreen, I think their banter is the best part of the movie, and they deserve their own movie. But I I did sort of like the rest of it too. I'm giving it more of a I'm giving it three stars. All right, all right. So Todd gave it three. Zach, you gave it two, right? Two and a half. I'll be generous. All right. Well, I was debating between two and a half and three, and I'm siding with two and a half for right now. Um, and uh, and I'm going to stick with that. Uh, yeah, this it, it, it was fun. Uh, I had I had some some issues with it. Um, I think it's interesting that Todd said um, that how good Sinatra is in this, because what I took away from this is uh, Sinatra does not have the on-screen chemistry to carry his own movie, I feel. And I think this is a perfect example of that. He needs to be the supporting guy or he needs to be a part of an ensemble. Like, you put him in, in some of those Gene Kelly musicals, he's great because he's not the main guy. You put him in Guys and Dolls, he's great because he's got Marlon Brando with him every step of the way. Um, I, I don't think... He's got one note when he's acting, and that's all he can play. And um, it, it, he's he's boring. I, I think he's boring in this, and he doesn't carry the the film at all. If it was if it was someone other than Sinatra running or at the heart of this movie, I think it would have been better. Um, Edward G. Robinson is great. Thelma Ritter's great, like you guys said. Um, and it's a really cool premise. It's it's great to see the parallels there, but uh, yeah. Uh, that's what I'm going with. I'm saying the issue with this movie for me is Sinatra. I don't think he can carry his own movie. I disagree no. with that. I, I think he's fine in the movie. My my bigger issue is Frank Capra. This movie mm. has a kind of darkness and a kind of grittiness that is totally wrong for a director like Capra, right? Um, this character should have been a lot darker. Uh, he, this is a character who, you know, he uh, is, uh, uh, he has lots of, he, he's a stick man, some solid stick man points for him. 
He's maybe involved in the mob in some way, but Capra insists on him also being this stand-up family man who loves his his son and mourns the loss of his wife. And he's you know nice toward this lady that he dates, Mrs. Rogers. I feel like if this movie had been made 10 years later, I actually saw some weird kind of parallels to Midnight Cowboy in this movie in the sense that this guy is trying to make it big, but he just keeps failing. And then he gets this one chance at the end of the movie that he just totally blows. And I think there's a kind of darkness that Midnight Cowboy had only 10 years after this movie was made that really could have fit this story quite a bit better. I will say, though, to back up your point a little bit, Terry, I do think Frank Sinatra is just a little bit too, like, uh, just likable. I, I would have liked a darker, more edgy actor. The actor I was thinking of was Walter Matthau. Like, I, as a, get get someone who's, like, curmudgeon and really kind of unlikable. And then I was kind of reminded of the dynamic in this movie between Sinatra and Carolyn Jones, which is a really interesting dynamic. And then that I thought, well, you know what? There is a movie that's like that with Walter Matthau, and it's with, with Elaine May as that character, and it's a new leaf from 1971. I don't know if either of you have ever seen that, but this kind of... This this kind of grouchy, you know, uh, rich, aristocratic guy with this goofy, strange, kind of quirky girl. Great chemistry there. So I don't know. I mean, this movie just reminded me of better movies. It should have been made 10 years later, and I think it could have actually turned out better. But Capra is the real problem. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, I mean, that, that just is what I was saying, though. It's like it, it deserved to be more of a drama. Instead, it plays it light, and that's not really what I wanted, but I mean, I guess it's predictable because it's Capra. Maybe well, hey, and Nicholas Ray. I could see Nicholas Ray directing this and making it a lot more interesting. And it is the 50s, and I mean, we are comparing it to Uncut Gems at the same time, too. And so when when you're, every time we say it needed to be darker, it's like, well, that's because we saw what the dark version was. Um, so th- there is there is that to it. So... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's the best and worst thing about the movie, right? I mean, it's the mm-hmm. best thing in the sense that it makes the movie, at least for me, palatable to watch. I wanted to keep watching it to see some of the parallels, but you're right. It's never going to get close to uh, Uncut Gems. I would also say, though, just hats off to Keenan Wynn, great character actor from the 50s and 60s and 70s. You might recognize him from, he's Colonel Bacuano in uh, Dr. Strangelove. And one of my favorite roles also is when he's in Nashville. He plays Shelley Duvall's uncle in that movie. And someone should just make a YouTube uh, you know, reel of his like reaction faces to Shelley Duvall in that movie. Um, he's a great actor, great face, kind of hard to kind of think of a modern day parallel to him, Um, but uh, really in like every TV show and movie from that era, always as a supporting player. All right, so we have uh, two and a half stars for me and Zach. We've got three stars from Todd. I want to know if the Safi brothers really love this movie or if they just grew up watching it. That's a good question. Or, or did they watch it and say, we could make that better? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh, if you want to watch this one, it is available on Tubi right now, which is uh, free for everybody. So uh, it, it's easy to find. Um, and it's one of the few places that actually has it, which is interesting, too. But uh, yeah, free on Tubi if you want to watch A Hole in the Head. Uh, all right. Now let's get to to the main event here. And uh, that is celebrating the 15th anniversary of Little Miss Sunshine. Why were you unhappy? I fell in love with someone who didn't love me back. One of my grad students. I was very much in love with him. 
him? You fell in love with the boy? Very much so. That's silly. There's another word for it. Uh, which is another movie featuring a, a prominent uh, child actor, uh, child performance, you could say. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, let's let's get into this. Let's uh, let's talk about this. We always start with our trivia. So our conversation doesn't give anything away. Um, I, I remember it was like the one of the first times we did this. One of the trivia questions ended up being how many questions were given away during the course of the podcast. And that's when we decided to put the trivia first. Anyways, Zach, you're hosting trivia this time. So uh, who's going first and how are we doing this? Uh, well, Todd picked this movie, right? He did. So I think we go with Terry first and okay. then go with Todd. Okay, so we'll have Todd uh, sign off. It's uh, a really yellow poster. I've been it trying is. to think of uh, other yellow posters. I can't really think. Maybe maybe Watchmen? I'm not sure. Um, uh, not that, not, not also, all what, yellow like that. What room is he in? What, where is he? he he's he's cat-sitting for somebody. Oh, that's, okay. I think yeah. I remember him mentioning yeah. that. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anyway, uh, yeah, so uh, trivia for... Uh, uh, Little Miss Sunshine. I have 11 questions. I think there are only 11 points. I don't really have any multiples on here. Tough okay. movie to ask questions for. Don't judge mm-hmm. me too hard. This is a weird weird choice. We'll, we'll maybe talk about that later. But Okay, here we go. All right. So, uh, at the 2006 Academy Awards, what, was the, what clip of Alan Arkin did they use um, before he was announced as the winner? Oh, it was it was the clip of uh, of him in the bedroom with Abigail Breslin growling. Correct. Yeah. Uh, what co-stars of a 2007 movie presented the 2006 Oscar for Best Original Screenplay? Presented the Oscar for Best. All right. So, what stars of a 2007 movie presented the 2006 Original Screenplay? And that this was to Michael Arndt. Right, right. right. Ooh, wow. Okay. Um, that is a crazy question. Uh, Alec Baldwin and Steve Martin? Well, that's 2009, I think. Oh. But, uh, uh, no. Uh, it was Toby Maguire and Kirsten Dunst, and there's a pal- oh. there's a palpable tension between them as they're uh, pre- presenting. <laughs> um, anyway, okay. Uh, uh, next question: What was the name of the regional pageant in New Mexico that Olive finished second in? Miss Daisy or something like that. Mm. As... No, Little Miss Chili Pepper. Oh, that's what it was. Yeah, you only heard it on the answering machine. Right. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, maybe I can't remember. Um, what is the name of the truck stop restaurant that they go to where Olive orders the ice cream? Alamode. Alamodi. Alamodi. Uh, I don't know. Pans. Kind of Pans. interesting. Same year as Pans Labyrinth, but I think it's it's with two ends. Uh, what is Grandpa's first name? Edwin. Edwin is correct. What does Frank order along with his porno magazines at the gas station? Uh, a um, oh, a raspberry slushy. I'll give you a half credit for that. It's a blue raspberry slushy. Blue ra- ah! Um, I knew that was going to be a question too. I knew it was going to be a question. Well, you probably also knew that this was a question too. What number does Olive wear on her shirt? Uh, nope, didn't know that was going to be a question. Um, really? 
I probably should have. I probably should have. Um, first, can I go? Can I go back one and and yeah. uh, just say how crazy the parallels were of uh, of Steve Carell ordering a blue raspberry slushy to uh, Miles ordering a spinach croissant. Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> I, well, I thought you were going to say the barely legal. There are several parallels with Sideways that I want to there talk are. about. There later are. There are. Yeah. But, I, uh, me too. Okay. Anyways, um, number on her shirt. I'm going to go with three. It is 68. Not even close. No, no. What is the name of the expo where Richard confronts Stan Grossman? Nope, don't know. Dynamic Strategies Expo. What is the name of Larry Sugarman? title. Yeah, very. <laughs> what is the name of Larry Sugarman's book? Oh, um... All right, this isn't it, but it would be a great one. If at Proust you don't succeed, that I like it. I think <laughs> I'm gonna give you a half point for that, just because that's a creative answer, and I think you're gonna need the points. I think so. Uh, what is the name of the undertakers who dispose of Grandpa's body? The name. Oh, um, but like the the people's names or the company name? The company name. Okay. It's on the van. Um, the Redondo Mortuary. I don't know. No, it's Mora Oka and Green Purveyors of Fine Undertaking. Wow. Okay. And last question. How many years has the Little Miss Sunshine pageant been held? Uh, 15? 24. Four. So, uh... I did horrible. Yeah, not, not so great. But, uh, you know, like all, it, it's not about, it's not about winning, uh, uh, you know, contrary to what Greg Kinnear says. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, hold on. Let me, let me, fi let me fix the order here. Hold on. Here we go. Uh, there we go. I now feel like I should now. be in the middle for this segment though. Cause I'm okay. The okay. Okay. We're, there we go. We're back. Much in the better. <laughs> should always be this way. Uh, okay. So, uh, we are back. Uh, uh, there are 11 questions worth 11 points, and Terry got a grand total of three questions. Nice. The, the, I don't know the, the three movie points. that well. It, that's really what it came down to. <laughs> and one of the half points was just because his answer was creative. It was like an A for effort. Okay. I don't think you ever actually told me what the actual answer was, but I'll hear it here soon. Okay. Um, so... Uh, First question, um, at the 2006 Academy Awards, what was the clip of Alan Arkin shown before he was announced as the winner? Um, I'm going to say... See, Todd doesn't watch the YouTube clips. See, I, I knew this. This is like the one I knew. Uh, the thing about the Nazi bullets. No. That would be great, though. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was a little too vulgar to be shown at the Oscars. Uh, uh, it was probably him in the hotel room then with the... Yes. Olive. I thought that was her clip. I, I don't know. Okay. Um, what co-stars... What her clip? I don't know. I didn't watch that. Probably screaming at the telephone. Uh, oh, maybe. What co-stars of a 2007 movie presented the 2006 Oscar for Best Original Screenplay? Terry, you should have gotten negative points for your answer. The more I'm thinking about it, I know. I, yeah, it was You're a horrible. Michael Sarah. I have no idea. No, it was Toby Maguire and Kirsten Dunst. 
Terry said Alec Baldwin and Steve Martin, which is just wrong on so many levels. That wasn't even the right year. Right? And not only that, but that's a movie that you love more than anyone else. Yeah, so but you like, should know that. The fact that they were coming up in a movie got them the hosting gig together. I don't know. I guess that's true. All right. So, okay, so that was coming up on Spider Man 3 or something? Yeah. One? Okay. And there was palpable tension on stage. They did not look like they were having fun with each other. Uh, okay, uh, next question. What is What was the regional pageant in New Mexico that Olive finished second in? Oh, the chili pepper contest? Little Miss Chili Pepper. Yeah, I'll give it to you. I just remember that because it was in it was in Albuquerque, and uh, you know, chili pea is my uh, is my signature, as Captain Cook says. Yep, Captain Cook. Uh, wow, what, that's what a is, great connection. What? Well, there's plenty more connections. Oh, there are. There are. <laughs> we'll talk about. Uh, what is the name of the truck stop restaurant that they go to, where Olive orders the ice cream alamodi? It's like. I don't know. It's like five letters long. I don't know what it said. It's like like mana or something. <laughs> Close. It's pans, but not pans. like pans labyrinth. Pans with two ends. Uh, what is two grandpa's? Ends. Yeah. I, okay. I I could picture that part. <laughs> what is grandpa's first name? Edwin. Edwin is correct. What does Frank order along with his porno magazines at the gas station? A blue raspberry slushy. Nice. That's correct. Um, what number does Olive wear on her shirt? Oh, like, like her actual T-shirt, not her yeah. contestant. Not her contestant. Yeah. Sixty-eight. That's correct. Um, what is the name of the expo where Richard confronts Stan Grossman? I don't know. They're in like Glendale. Some I, I don't know what it's called. It's called the Dynamic Strategies Expo. Very creative name. Um, what is the name of Larry Sugarman's book? Oh, I don't know what that is. Uh, it's Understanding Proust, and Terry got a half point because what was your answer again? Uh, my answer was, if at Proust you don't succeed. <laughs> <laughs> Just brilliant. <laughs> What is the name of the undertakers who dispose of grandpa's body? And not the company name. <clears throat> it, it's, it says like something in undertakers, like funer something funeral and undertakers. It's the Muraoka and green purveyors of fine undertaking. Yeah, okay. And then last question, how many years has the Little Miss Sunshine pageant been held? I don't even I don't even remember that line. I'm gonna say 18. The answer is 24. It's when they it's when they start the the pageant. They say it's the 24th annual Little Miss Sunshine pageant. Okay. That's that's what, what I, I kind of figured. Did I get four? Yes, Todd wins by Jeez. a narrow four to three margin in a movie that was really hard to write questions for. So. <laughs> I really thought you were gonna ask who wins the Miss America pageant at the very beginning because it was Miss Kansas. <laughs> that's true. Oh. That would have been a good one. Yeah. All right. Uh, what, what kind of ice cream that is uh, Miss California's favorite ice cream? Oh, chocolate cherry Garcia. It might be a... But it might be a frozen, frozen yogurt. yogurt. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I should have asked that question. I forgot about that. I knew there was going to be something about food. I wasn't expecting a blue raspberry slushy. 
Oh, that I knew that one was coming up, but I forgot it was blue. I just said raspberry slushy. Well, Terry said, "What what does Frank order?" I thought you were talking about what, what does he order at the uh, at the restaurant, and it was like something in chamomile. He has, he has like a veggie plate and chamomile or something. That, else. Yeah, fruit plate, fruit plate, fruit plate. It's kind of amazing that they serve chamomile there. I just don't know how Terry didn't know that I was going to ask the question about the the uniform number. I mean, that's oh, like yeah. I know yeah, you I thought, give me I mean, shit I'm for sure all the time. Twenty five is her pageant number. I took note of both of those. I was like, okay, these are that questions. <laughs> See, the other one I thought you were going to ask was, uh, what is the only other name of a contestant at Little Miss Sunshine that we hear, and the name was Charisma. Oh. Sounds wow. like she should be a groupie. Yeah, yeah. I, I was. It was definitely sounding like something else for sure. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, Todd, you picked the movie and you won trivia. Uh, tell us all about uh, all about Little Miss Sunshine. Why you picked it? Your experience with it? All that stuff. So, Little Miss Sunshine was sort of a monster hit indie movie in 2006. It was a Sundance movie. And then it came out in the summer, and somehow it parlayed that into several Oscar nominations, including Best Picture. I didn't see it until more toward the ceremony. So, and when I saw it, it was sort of like, okay, this is this is like a fun comedy movie, and it was on TV a lot in the coming year or something like that. But I hadn't watched it in quite a while, and I sort of my estimation of it had sort of grown over time just because of what I remember about it. But I hadn't I hadn't seen it in at least probably six or seven years. So, uh, and I had a sort of a different experience this time. I, I appreciated different things. Uh, the movie is about this family, the the Hoovers. They live in Albuquerque and they're going to this beauty pageant in uh, California. And they so they have to go on a road trip because they don't have any money to take a plane and uh, they all have to be together because for varying reasons. And they are in this like really lovely, terrible like van that is the... Um, the perfect thing for a dysfunctional family comedy because it, ha it the the van says everything about the about the family, and uh, it's yeah I mean it, it, it's a fun movie it, it it is definitely a comedy it has a huge heart it uh, and it's hard to believe that this movie got a best picture nomination but uh, it's it, it's a it's a first movie by a pair of directors. Uh, it's a first screenplay, but it's the cast that makes this movie work. Like it is the one of the most impeccably casted movies uh, of that of that era. Like every every character, I, I, it's hard to see anybody else playing it. And uh, you, I, I could have seen any one of them get nominations. Uh, of course, Alan Arkin and Abigail Breslin were the two that actually did get nominated because they sort of have the flashiest roles. Uh, yeah, but it. It's a really good movie. I wanted to do it because it, I mean it's it's significant. It's it was the best picture nominee, and uh, 2006 was one of the best formative years in in my film uh, film uh, film life growing up. So, yeah, yeah. I I don't think I'd seen this movie since the first time I'd watched it, and I honestly don't remember if I saw it in theaters or not. I think I may have. Not, I think I may have waited to watch it until it came out on DVD, which I have to show you guys, I've had this DVD for a long time and you can tell because because here's here's the color of the DVD and here's the color of the spine. Wow. And so you can tell <laughs> tell how much it's been weathered by the yeah yeah sun, sun bleached on the spine there. Um and so one of the things that I was probably more of a disadvantage for me is that I saw it after all of the 
the buzz was out on it. Like everyone had heard about how great this movie was and how it was this indie hit and everything. And after all that, after the, the, the expectations had been built up, that's when I watched it. And I, I really liked it. I was just looking, I, I gave it three and a half stars. It's in my top 10, which might say more about 2006 than it does about how much I liked it. Um, because let's see here. No, I gave it. A, it was almost a four-star movie. My initial um, rating of it. So, um, but yeah, it's. Uh, I really appreciated it this time around. I I thought, I the things that I if I remember right, the things I didn't necessarily like about it, I didn't mind as much this time. Um and uh and there there are some there are some moments that are almost cartoonish, and there are some moments that are so unbelievably real and um and just like slice of life moments like like the opening dinner scene is such a just slice of life like have you ever seen a a a scene more encapsulate what it's like to be in like a house of busy people before then 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 here's a bucket of chicken and uh and go ahead and eat It, it just it just felt so normal and it's it's hard to capture normal quite like that. But then there's there's cartoonish moments which pop up all the time too, like the ending, which is one of the things that I know, um, Todd. I know we've talked about it before. That is one of the more problematic parts. Is it's such a it's such a goofy ending to a movie that isn't necessarily goofy. But um, but yeah, that that's kind of that, that's kind of where where I'm at with it. It was great to go back and revisit it after all after 15 years. Um, but uh, but yeah, Zach, how about you? So uh, I'm not as big a fan of it as either of you. I had it ranked number 51 on my 06 list, right in between Snakes on a Plane and Jackass number two. Boy, that's very 2006. Um, so yeah, I I remember seeing this. Uh, you still give it three stars though. I did. Uh, uh, maybe not anymore, but uh, we'll maybe talk about that. Um, But uh, yeah, I think one of the notable things about it for me was, um, you know, I'd always commute from Eugene to Portland at the beginning of the school year. And uh, this one came out right at the end of the summer, just as 40-Year-Old Virgin had the year before. And I remember that summer seeing 40-Year-Old Virgin, you know, coming back to Portland and being blown away by this guy named Steve Carell and just loving it. And then one year later, the first movie seen back in Portland was this movie and just how huge Steve Carell had been in that year. Like, is there another actor that had maybe a greater 12 months in terms of their career recognition than Steve Carell from summer 2005 to summer 2006? Just tremendous growth. Um, Anyway, um, I like the movie. Uh, I don't love it. I was not rooting for it at the Oscars. I feel still feel it's sort of a travesty that it beat out some of those other original screenplay winners it has charm it has a great 15 minute opening 15 minutes and it has a great trailer uh i found myself kind of being surprised that i remembered as much of the movie as i did i even remembered the part about Dwayne being colorblind like i knew that i knew there was a reason why he talked later in the movie but i couldn't quite finger put my finger on then i was like oh yeah it's because he discovers he's colorblind and then he goes apeshit about it um it didn't hold up particularly well for me we'll maybe talk about some of the reasons why i'm however i was a fan of todd's 
2006 review of it on our web website, which, which he, he lavished quite a bit of praise on it. I think I, I, I was just looking at that too. And one of the things he said is the acting in this is, um, is the best part or something like that, which goes to what you just said about the casting. Yeah. And well, I, don't know. I mean, I, I would argue Paul Dano's rise from this movie to There Will Be Blood was was similar to um, Steve Carell, but well, yeah. but Steve Carell went from being uh, went from being just one of the guys on The Daily Show to Forty Year Old Virgin, The Office, and Little Miss Sunshine. Well, in he had months. he had Anchorman. That's true. I, yeah, but as sort of a side character, I mean. He, he was he, even if you look up like the trivia for this movie, the producers really weren't sure about casting him in this major of a role, right? Well, and, and that I, and I was looking at it too. It this was filmed in the summer of 2005 before 40 Year Old Virgin came out, so he was still kind of a not really a known entity, just kind of the side guy from Bruce Almighty and uh, an Anchorman. Yeah, that was one of the questions I had was what when was this film? Because he looks very different in this movie than he looks on season one of The Office. Like he either lot like he looks at least 20 pounds slimmer in this movie than he does in the office. And obviously he has way more facial hair. But I couldn't quite pinpoint it. Yeah, yeah the, it, it just said summer 2005. March of this time I, I was more impressed with Carell than I remember being when it actually came out. Like I because he was always like the 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 least interesting character to me when I watched it before, but this time I actually really appreciated what he did and think that he might have given like a sneaky like Oscar worthy performance. And he, because he like he, he has these lines like it said that the, originally they wanted like uh, Bill Murray or Robin Williams to play this part, which would have been way too old. It would have had to be in like another grandparent or something. But but Steve Carell like the lines also feel like they're written for him because of how he delivers them, and it, it, it's such a like a a sincere character. Okay, so so he he would have been in the supporting actor race. I know Paul Dano we always heap praise on, which surprisingly enough is the only member of this cast that hasn't been nominated for an Oscar, which is kind of insane to think about. He because he's it, the fact that he didn't get one for his dual roles in There Will Be Blood is crazy. Or um, in the, the movie about the Beach Boys. Love oh, Mercy. yeah, yeah. Or Prisoners. He's really good in Prisoners, too. He's always been overlooked. Like, he, mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, at this time, like, I mean, he was nominated for a Spirit Award for this movie. But other than that, like, he pretty much was ignored. And it's, a, it's not an easy role to play. So the, the biggest moment of, you could say, the biggest moment of that, one of the biggest moments of that Oscars, was when Alan Arkin beat Eddie Murphy for Supporting Actor. Um, Looking back at it, was it earned? Well, I mean, I, I between Eddie Murphy and Alan Arkin, I don't really, really have a problem with either one winning. I don't know that I would say. I mean, he wouldn't be my choice in the category necessarily. You'd probably go with Jackie Earl Haley. Of course. Yeah. So I was rewatching that Oscars, obviously, because of the questions that I asked, uh, and. The the most the actor that got the most applause from the audience was Mark Wahlberg, and <laughs> I think he should have won. And uh, Rachel Weisz also had the funniest quip to say about him. She was like, "And Mark Wahlberg played someone who arrested him twenty five years earlier." It was pretty funny. Um, 
Yeah, uh, I don't think either of these are great performances. Um, I mean, it was kind of cool seeing an upset in a way because I think everyone had just expected Eddie Murphy to win. But like, honestly, watching this movie again, what Alan Arkin does in this movie is like so easy. I mean, anyone, literally anyone could have done this role. Jack Nicholson, uh, Christopher Walken, Robert Duvall, anybody. Well, it was originally supposed to be Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman. Well, he, he but, did it in the Royal Tenenbaums. I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, and, and but nobody makes it sound as funny as Alan Arkin because of his voice. The same thing with his character in Glengarry Glen Ross and his character in Argo. Like those characters are high war performances because of the sound of his voice. I think it's a lame Oscar win. I also think the screenplay win is abhorrent. That that this movie beat out, uh, as Arnold would say, Babel. And uh, um, it was the, it was the indie comedy that they won the screenplay awards. Lost in Translation, Sideways, Juno, Little Miss Sunshine's what they did. They were big into. I I understand that. I understand that. And and actually rewatching it, I will say that I was pleasantly impressed by Michael Arnold's <coughs> acceptance speech. One of my favorite things about that moment was the MC says that the factoid they give about Michael Arnold is that he had to quit his day job as Michael as Matthew Broderick's uh, personal assistant. It's like such a random fact. <laughs> Um, and but I remember that that fact was thrown around all the oh, yeah. time. Oh yeah, they love that. This. That was yeah. like that one guy that won the Masters, uh, who was the former cell phone salesman. Like they 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 love throwing shit shit out like that. Um, but I will say I really liked his acceptance speech watching it. And he seemed genuinely humble and uh, and very appreciative. But uh, there's no way that should have beat out uh, Babel or uh, Bobby or uh, Pan's Labyrinth, or, um, you know, arguably one of the five greatest original screenplays of all time in the lives of others. Not that that was nominated, but still, it's not not a great win. I don't even know if it was eligible. But it probably wasn't. Yeah, because it, it didn't it didn't get a, an American release until 2007. Um, yeah, well, but it won I, foreign film that year is what I'm saying. I mean, it wasn't going right. to it was never going to get it. But I'm just saying if, if right, we call it right. a 2006 film. Yeah, I, I I would have probably given given something like Pan's Labyrinth the win over it, but that would be maybe the only one I'd give. Maybe Letters from Iwo Jima, um, but um, but yeah, Pan I would probably give over it. But I I don't know. I I like I, I like how it kind of plays with like I said, it plays with having these realistic moments and then going back to to kind of the the more screwball comedy moments too. It's 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 interesting how it can dance back and forth between the two. It's like a sitcom. It's like everybody loves Raymond. I mean, okay, I'm just gonna get it out of the way. I did not like this movie watching it again. It did not age well for me. Oh. Uh, it was. I've never been a huge fan of this movie. I'll just put that out there. But like, it, this movie didn't work. It just wasn't. It, there wasn't really anything funny about it. Um, I, the, the, so, that means, the, so it doesn't mean it didn't age well. It's if you didn't like it to begin with. But I guess it has to do with I, how well it ages. Well, but maybe you haven't more, aged though. well, Zach. Yeah, that's true. Well, oh, of course. Yeah, I, I mean, that's <laughs> fair to say. But in 06, I found it more. I don't know. I I gave it three stars. I mean, I, I never I never was big on the movie, but I at least could acknowledge that there was something charming about it. I Did think Ebert like it? Ebert, curiously enough, this was during Ebert's uh, hiatus during his surgery. So I I don't know what Ebert thought of it. Um, Jim Emerson, I think, really liked it on his website, but. The truth is, I think one thing that's kind of polluting my judgment about this movie is just how many dysfunctional family sitcoms were right around this time and afterwards, like Arrested Development, Modern Family, even Schitt's Creek. I mean, there's so much of that 
in this movie and it's hard to distinguish this from being like a basically 90 minute sitcom and i that's not necessarily a fair criticism but i can't help but think about even sitcoms today that have even done done it better but just the whole dysfunctional family on a road trip dynamic for me was just sort of derivative and once you get past the first 15 minutes i don't really think there's that much innovative stuff in this movie so there's the podcast everybody bye take care it was fun (laughs) No, I well, mean, and I, I think I think it's uh, that that's fair to say, but it, it's it's also it's it's also not fair to think that one of the ones that started the trend doesn't hold up as well because it started the trend. I mean, like, yeah, I, I don't think it started anything. I think it was it was going. I mean, it was firmly already established on TV. And I think it, it goes goes back to a long tradition beginning with like National Lampoon's Vacation. I mean, I could see a lot of that in this movie quite a bit. And yeah, like even that was a bit more cutting edge in the 1980s. The idea of, you know, profanity and kind of adult, more adult themes and this kind of wholesome family dynamic. I mean, that relative in the trunk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> she was on the roof. Oh, she was on the roof. The thing that makes the thing that makes me that redeems this movie only slightly is just how good these actors are and how fun it is watching them um, interact with each other. I mean, these are solid actors, and I mean, Tony Collette is very underused in this movie. I think that's one of the biggest flaws of this movie. But she has great facial expressions and reactions. Paul Dano, I think, is just really awesome in this movie. Um, And of course, as we've talked about, seeing Steve, Steve Carell start to play a role that was very different than. Um, the Andy and uh, Michael, Michael Scott type roles. I mean, he should have been the Greg Kinnear character in this movie, but he wasn't. And he plays his character really, really well. And you can start seeing um, how he could be more of a dramatic actor uh, in this role. Well, and and I love how Steve Carell, in, in his career, he's always kind of found something different to do that is that that makes you go, huh? Like he... He did. He did the office. He did Forty Year Old Virgin. Then he does this, and then he does like Evan Almighty. But then he does Dan in real life, and then and then he goes along and does some more comedies. And the way then he way does... back is I think is the one time, the first time I, I I ever consciously thought like, wow, he really is stepping out for this one. Like he's playing something he never did, which is like like a, a abrasive asshole. And yeah, like, great really good at that he, that's the Greg Kinnear role in this movie. Like, that's another movie that almost had an identical premise. Interestingly enough, Tony Collette is also in that movie. I think they're they're in a relationship in that movie, right? But, like, that has such a similar dynamic. I don't know. The problem for me is what makes this movie, like, unique or distinctive from the rest of them outside of the fact that it got more critical praise and some Oscars? Well, it's weird. Is it, it came out in the summer. And like, so, But I could see how at the end of the year you could be like, you know what movie I liked this year was Little Miss Sunshine, even though I hadn't seen it in like six months. I could see people doing that. And that just like started a steamroll of support for the movie. Because uh, if I remember right, that movie wasn't really a hit at the box office or anything. So it, I could see it, it, it being that movie that sticks with you. Yeah, it, it does have a peculiar rise over the, over the, the second half of that year, or I guess since Sundance. Yeah, I mean, it's also something that's probably clouding my judgment a little bit is the fact that this movie won two Oscars, arguably not deservedly so in my opinion. Had this movie gone just as another sort of indie Fox Searchlight movie from 2006 without that kind of critical recognition, I'd probably like it more. So it, it looks like here the budget was $8 million for this and cumulative worldwide gross when all was said and done was $101 million for Little Miss Sunshine. Oh, that's a pretty big hit. 
Yeah, fifty nine million uh, domestically. Was that re released probably after the Oscars or? I don't know. That's just the number IMDb gives. I will say they played the shit out of that trailer. That was at every single movie mm-hmm. in summer 2006 was that trailer. And the trailer was hilarious. It was one of those examples of the trailer that, I mean, a, a type of trailer that pretty much gave away all the funniest bits, or at least many of the funniest bits from the movie. And Especially I went in, Alan Arkins. Yeah, I went in really looking forward to the movie. And uh, it just, I don't know, it was like the first 15 minutes, awesome. This was in the trailer, great. And then just kind of nothing happened the rest of the way. So I think I think the first scene is really good, and I think that it picks up steam like halfway through. Then I I feel like it it gets really good like at a certain point. Uh, pretty much yeah, maybe may, I guess around when uh, when uh, Alan Arkin's character dies. After that, I think it has like a really good stretch too. I think it, I think it picks up steam later in the movie. But watching again, Todd, because you're obviously more of a fan of this movie. Like, do you really think like? Academy Award worthy performance for Alan Arkin. Like that was the other thing that kind of bothered me. He's not really in this movie that much, and when he's in it, it's just like kind of screaming. I mean, well, not necessarily. I mean, I think I just think he's really funny, and it's it's Alan Arkin. He was a legend. That's why he won. I don't think that necessarily anyone thought that he gave like the best performance in the category. But it it, it is strange to think about because, like like I said, at this time I liked Steve Carell a lot more than I than I did before, and I've always been a big fan of Paul Dano. But Alan Arkin's easy one to reward because he's the grandparent role and he is vulgar and he he sounds funny. It, it was a career achievement award, I think. Um, and and what's interesting, I actually heard someone else talking about this recently. Um, if he doesn't win for this, does he win five years later or six years later for Argo? Yeah. Yeah, probably. Because that, that was a that. really wide open race anyway. And he, yeah. All then former that, winners, been, and he would have been the been one that wasn't. But let's be honest. I mean, the elephant in the room is that the the Oscars, the, the Academy was pissed that Eddie Murphy had made an orbit. They they were offended that at the time of the ceremony, people were going to theaters and watching Eddie Murphy as Norbit, and then they would associate Eddie Murphy with the Academy Awards. That's that's the real reason behind it. And they nominated Norbit for an Oscar. Yeah. Well, and the other the other part of it too is that. Uh, I mean, it was going to be, this was supposed to be a battle between Eddie Murphy and Jack Nicholson, and then they didn't even give Jack Nicholson the nomination. So, uh, it, it was just completely opened it wide up. Who knew what was going to happen? And yeah, it was it was one of the bigger upsets. If I remember right, I remember hearing Eddie Murphy just left the Oscars at that point and just walked out. Um, and uh, yeah fascinating so since we're talking about alan arkin let's use that to transition into our mount rushmore for this deep dive and it's it's in honor of little miss sunshine it's in honor of uh of another supporting acting win that just happened this year it's in honor of the fact that we're recording this on mother's day too um and and those that kind of play that kind of role in our lives we are doing a mount rushmore of the greatest grandparents in movie history um, and are, are we going to go with, do we have a consensus that Alan Arkin and Little Miss Sunshine is our, is the one we're going to go with together or no? By the look on Zach's face, I'm saying, I'm thinking no. So I was thinking we'd probably go with Yuzhun Yoon before. Or Yuzhun yeah. Yoon, we could yeah. say is our, yeah, I'm good with that. So, uh, so yeah, Yuzhun Yoon Jun for, uh, Minari is our other, is the other 
one that is kind of a, a an inspiration for this too. So let let's say that's our that's our consensus. So Yuyun Jun for Minari is our consensus. So let's go through this. Todd, I'm gonna let you go first. Uh, who are you submitting for Mount Rushmore? I thought this was really impossible. Like I, because I, <laughs> I, I still have problems with us even doing this. Because like, are we just choosing anybody that's a grandparent or like people that do grandparent like things, as, like people are most acting like a grandparent? I don't know. But the first one I thought of was Grandma Gilmore and Happy Gilmore, because I mean, she is everything to Happy Gilmore, and she's definitely the grandparent role and. And I don't know. I, I mean, she, she, that was the first thing I thought of because, like, she's a major part of that movie, and she's she's funny. And what I like about that is it, it's kind of at that point you also have it's the grandparent that's reached the point where where Happy's taking care of her, which which is always a which is kind of inevitable at some point that that you take care of those that have taken care of you. Um, I like that one. I like that one. Okay, Zach. You're next. Well, I I had some issues with this too. I think I might. What's your idea? Yeah. Well. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna go with uh, and actually, yeah. Uh, this uh, this is gonna even piss you off more, Todd. I, I'm gonna go with Gael Garcia Bernal as Hector, the trickster slash grandpa in uh, Coco, even though he's technically the great great grandpa. Mm. So it's neither really a performance or a true grandparent. But if you watch the movie, like, you know, it's a really sweet grandparent. There should have been a power ranking. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, mean, I, was trying to, I was trying to think of, of a character that's mostly defined in a grandparent role. And uh, I don't know. And it's what, really hard. That's why I said, like, it's, I mean, that, we never specified how we were doing this. So, Yeah. Okay. Why, can our default be Blanche level? That should be our default. <laughs> they could get a washing machine to fly. Um, once again, I tried to be Blanche Level, and it comes out as Jimmy Stewart. Um, <laughs> okay, so we've got we got uh, Happy Gilmore, we got Coco, we got Minari. Uh, I've got two written down. I was hoping one of you would say one the other one, so I could go with my crazy one. But I'm gonna have to go with with the obvious kind of low-hanging fruit, and that's Grandpa Joe from uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Um, that went, I mean, when you think about movie grandpas, I mean, that that's that's the pinnacle right there. I mean, he, he finds a way to get out of a bedridden life to uh, to take Charlie on a tour of a chocolate factory. I mean, and you could tell, like, he he means the world to Charlie, too. Like, that that is, like, his his idol growing up. And so I, I'm going with that one. The other one that I really, really wanted to go with, Todd will appreciate this. I wanted to go with uh, Jason Robards as Thomas Haywood in little big league nice. because I mean, he dies like 10 minutes into the movie, but in his will, he leaves his grandson, the Minnesota twins. I mean, that's amazing right there. That that's a grandparent. So uh, I, I wanted to go with that, but I, I couldn't pass over grandpa Joe. Yeah, the other ones I was thinking of were Yuli's Gold, the grandfather in that, uh, Tokyo Story, the grandparents. And, uh, of course, the one I wanted to go with, and I probably should have just because this is ridiculous, is uh, 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 Johnny Knoxville as Bad Grandpa. Because, uh, yeah. Just, I mean, 
just amazing, amazing work there. Yeah, the the other one I thought of was uh, Peter Falk in uh, in uh, Princess Bride, mm. reading the bedtime story. I also really like Cloris Leachman in uh, Spanglish as the drunk, drunk grandma. I mean, that's again a cliche at this point, but I think she does it as well as anybody. Nice, nice. Can't go wrong with that either. Okay. Well, uh, Todd said one of the best parts of this, of uh, Little Miss Sunshine, is I, I like how it was inspired by Little Miss Sunshine, yet Alan Arkin did not make the list, but that's okay. Um, so, uh, we, um, Todd said the best part of Little Miss Sunshine is the cast. So, we are going to do the impossible and try and recast. And uh, we're mainly looking at, at the, the main principal family members here. That's what we're going with. Uh, if this movie were to be made today, who would be starring in it? So we're going to start with with uh, Richard, played by Greg Kinnear uh, in the original. I'll go first. Uh, my pick for uh, for Richard is uh, Bill Hader. It kind of needs to be this kind of lovable loser type of guy. Uh, a guy you could see. I, I find this character fascinating because he is kind of a failure at everything. And he tries to parlay that into being a motivational speaker. Um, and I could someone, I could see Bill Hader just eating that up and, uh, and being the right type of guy for that because he's like the all American dad that, yeah, that you could just be in this lovable loser at the same time. So Bill Hader, that's what I got. Todd, how about you? Uh, so I don't really know what the age, the ages are all over the place in this movie. So they it's are. kind of hard. Uh, there are, so I have two written down. Uh, one was probably, is probably around the same age as Greg Kinnear is. And that's Ron Livingston. I think that you could probably do that role in his sleep. Mm, yeah. But, uh, uh, the one I wanted to go with is, uh, Ryan Reynolds. I, I think that'd be a, the, a pretty easily bankable movie to watch. And, and I think that he has a lot of those, those endearing qualities that, that, uh, Greg Kinnear ex explores in this in that role and he i think he could play a loser it'd be a little it'd, it'd be a little weird at the start but i mean i think he would he could do it i thought about him i thought he'd make it a little too goofy though like like the richard is like the straight man in all the chaos going on around him and i don't know if ryan reynolds could pull that off all right yeah all right zach what do you got uh i went with the low-hanging fruit which I think is obvious, Matt Damon. I mean, come on. If we're talking about a jerk motivational speaker, I mean, it's right there. It's, I feel like it's every Matt Damon role the last 20 years, including The Departed, which we just talked about. That's a good point. That is a good point. All right. How about how about Cheryl? Cheryl is the wife, played by Tony Collette. Um, and Zach said he... Um, earlier that Tony Collette is very expressive in, in just kind of the, the looks and the, and so I was looking at people who, uh, women who are also very expressive and, and, um, and can act a lot kind of just with the, with the look on their face, their faces. I went with Claire Foy. Um, I thought she'd be, she'd be a good fit for, uh, for a role like this, trying to run the, run the family. It'd be very similar to like her role in first man, I feel like, but I, I think it could work. Todd, uh, Scarlett Johansson, uh, mainly because mm -hmm. it'd be with Ryan Reynolds, and that'd be really, really interesting. 
the the strained relationship kind of thing. And uh, yeah, Tony Collette is is like sneaky hot in this movie. And um, I I think that uh, Scarlett could uh, I, I think that she reminded me a lot of Scarlett Johansson honestly when I was watching it this time. So there we go. I like it, Zach. Oh, I I really don't have anyone good. I don't know. Rachel McAdams. That's not bad, actually. Rachel That's McAdams and Matt Damon. That's, I could see okay. it. I could see it. It's a huge age gap. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I know. but There's like a 10-year age gap between Greg Kinnear and Tony Collette, though. So That's true. She was only 12 years older than Paul Dano. when this. I know. <laughs> All right. Now it's time for Grandpa. Of course, played by Alan Arkin, like we've already talked about. I really like my casting for this. Um, the the crass grandfather who just is a comic relief in so many scenes. I'm going with Billy Crystal. <laughs> I could see it. I could see it. That'd be interesting. Yeah, I could see it. I could he see hasn't it. done anything like that in a long time. Nope, nope, but it would work. It totally would work. God. So the, uh, yeah, the old... Uh, heroin snorting grandpa is of course going to be played by Nick Nolte. Like there's, <laughs> it's it's almost too easy. <laughs> uh, yeah. Would he have the crazy hair though, or would he be bald? That's the real question. I, I'm just thinking way. Nick Nolte's mugshot with the with the Hawaiian shirt. I think that look would be really good for Grandpa Edwin. I, I I've heard. I've heard people describe Nick Nolte as he has a voice like gravel. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <laughs> All right, Zach. I had two. You guys tell me which one's better. I went with John Malkovich or Jeff Bridges. Malkovich. I mean, any movie where Malkovich is spewing obscenities, obviously is something that people want to see. Always the chicken. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> And he could maybe he could have some Oreos, like a recall to rounders. Like I I feel like he could take it a lot of directions. I'd want to see what he would do with that role. You're right, Malkovich is the better pick. But Jeff Bridges may be in the same vein as, as Nick Nolte, something he could probably do in his sleep. Yeah. yeah. What about like Jonathan Banks? I just thought of that thing. You've got enough uh, yeah. bad guys in here. That'd be, I think That's that'd be hilarious. I could see that. All right. Next we have Frank. Played by Steve Carell. So I'm thinking someone who's got to be able to to pass as a... So even though it doesn't really work in Little Miss Sunshine, I mean, this is supposed to be Tony Collette's brother, and they look nothing alike. But my, my I'm thinking someone who has to look like it could be a brother to Claire Foy. I went with Andrew Scott. And I think he could pull off the... He could pull off the... Like, you could look at him and say, oh, yeah, he's a genius. I don't know who that and, is. Oh, he's... Uh, what is he in? Um, Spectre? He's in Fleabag. Is that the guy in Fleabag? Yes, he's in Fleabag. Um, 1917, Lieutenant Leslie. Yeah. Yeah. If he's, yeah. Yeah. Andrew Scott. Okay. I, I no, I, I, I see him. I, I think he would be good. Pulling off that role. I can see it. I can see it. Todd. Uh, so what I wrote down was Adrian Brody. 
I, I'm not really sure why, other than that, like I see a lot of uh, Wes Anderson traits in the in this movie yeah. at times, and uh, Adrian Brody seems like he would he would be in in this version, I guess. I don't know. I mean, and he he does play that that like a kind of genius type pretty well. But I don't know if he straight comedy like this. I don't know. Well, we would we we would be able to see, but I think this is the hardest one to cast. Andrew Scott was also in uh, Band of Brothers. His private hall in the uh, Carrington. Anyways, um, that makes sense. Right. Yeah, Zach. Yeah, you just turned your movie into a Wes Anderson movie, Todd. I, um, <laughs> which it probably, which it probably is to some degree already. I know it's Adrian Brody pick, I think. Um, but uh, okay, so as sort of a payoff to my going with Matt Damon as Richard, I went with uh, as Frank Jimmy Kimmel because. That would be a version I'd want to see. Jimmy Kimmel's already got the beard. And if you're asking me to watch a remake of a movie that I already don't like, then there has to be some other element to it. Let's get Matt Damon and Jimmy Kimmel in the same movie where they're antagonistic toward each other, where they're just hurling insults at each other, and occasionally Malkovich throws in some as well. Sign me up. I'm on board. A suicidal scholar, Jimmy Kimmel. He's got the beard, though. <laughs> That's what it takes to cast in the beard. Okay. <laughs> all right. Last one we're going to recast all together is Dwayne, played by Paul Dano. Uh, my pick, once I thought of him and how much he, he just kind of looks the part, I had to go with it. Uh, I don't know how well he would actually be able to act it, but I'm going with Isaac Hempstead Wright. That's right. Bran Stark, the three-eyed raven himself. He would uh, he would take the place of, uh, of None Paul of Dano. None of that sounds familiar. Who is that? What? None, none of those like Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah, I have He's, no idea. Yeah, you don't know who I'm talking. Bran in Game of Thrones, Zach. Uh, okay, I'll you pretend know. I know what you're talking about. The Three-Eyed Raven. I'm the Three-Eyed Raven. Okay. Come on, man. Dude, it's been a while. The There's like 300 characters on that show. Yeah, and this one's a Stark. Come on, dude. <laughs> if, if its name is not Ned or Arya, then I'm kind of lost. Oh gosh! Did you? You didn't even actually watch the show. Whatever. All right, Todd. Okay, Dwayne's fifteen in this movie, <laughs> which I mean, Paul Dano is twenty-two-year-old. Yeah. So I went with an actual like fifteen-year-old, and that is Sonny Suljic, who is the uh, the kid in mid nineties and oh. and uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer, and I think he has the attitude and the facial expressions to absolutely nail that role. And he he'd be the right age, but he is really tiny. So I mean, it, it would be it'd be a lot different than watching Paul Dano, who's like big lanky guy. But I mean, I think he would fit. Isaac Hempstead Wright was also in Voyagers, but don't hold that against him. I'm gonna hold that against that. him because <laughs> I didn't he, like he the was cast he movie. was like one of the he was like the um the tall lanky white kid in Voyagers. That was one of the supporting guys. Anyways, all right, Zach. All right, um, well, uh, hold on. Okay, uh, I think I'm going to go with, um, oh, okay, uh, Jacob Dylan Igielski, who played um, Adam Sandler's son in uh, Uncut Gems. I mean, you can't I, go wrong going Uncut Gems stuff. So. I don't know which son. I don't know, one of them. But can we talk about recasting Olive? 
How come? Sure. How was that so difficult for me? It was not only was it obvious, but actually there were several interesting choices. So for a seven-year-old. Well, she, I mean, she doesn't have to be seven. I I went with Brooklyn Prince as we as we know because we you know we pre-gamed this. We talked about this. But what about like Julia Butters? I mean, she would she would kill it also, right? Yeah. What, I, I what about like the? Young... She, she's not. She's not kind of like. I mean, it need to be be someone not fit. Well, yeah, yeah, Abigail Breslin wore a fat suit. I think it would be uh, holding up that tradition. What about the young Anya Taylor Joy on a uh, 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 Queen of Thrones or uh, Queen uh, Queen's Gambit? <laughs> Queen of Thrones. Queen of Thrones. Brand is the one in the wheelchair, Zach. Oh, okay. Is that if that helps at all? If that doesn't I mean, help you at all, you. I think I know who you're talking about. I think I know who you're talking about. Yeah, I'll just, I don't know. I'll just say I, I know who you're talking about. The only person I wrote down for this was, uh, of course, someone from Girl Meets World. And that was the girl that played Ava Morgenstern, Ava Colker, <laughs> just because it was the only person like ten or under I could think of. Uh, what if we made? What if? What if Dwayne was was a girl and it was Thomas and Mackenzie? I like that casting. Actually, I could sign up for that. Let's do it. Yeah. Her dance at the end would be kind of similar to Paul Dano's dance at the end of this. Her dance at yeah. the end of Jojo Rabbit, I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then maybe we could make the kid from Jojo Rabbit be Olive. What was Roman, his name? Roman. Roman, Roman, Roman yes, there we go. I like it. I'm, I'm signing up for that. <laughs> Little Mr. Sunshine. Um, all right. Who would Nicolas Cage play? I think he'd I, play. I, oh, go ahead. I went with Stan Grossman. I, I, I wrote down sense. Grandpa or uh, State Trooper McCleary. <laughs> <laughs> I went with uh, the host of the pageant. Yeah, I was thinking <laughs> that one too. I was thinking that one too. <laughs> he, he gets to sing America the Beautiful. Why <laughs> yeah. is he singing, by the way? <laughs> like, I I, I, I've never understood that. He's like... He, <laughs> It was like it was his show. <laughs> Greg Kinnear obviously doesn't understand it either. <laughs> I don't think he understood anything about that show. He didn't understand the anything. The yodeler, he just, he just was like, wait, is this actually happening? <laughs> like, uh, all right. Uh, let's get into uh, the rest of our categories here. Highest war performance. Todd, you're first. I'm going with Paul Dano. Uh, he... He he made his career out of like facial expressions, and I I always thought that he would have made a great uh, Nick in the Deer Hunter, like because he definitely has those Christopher Walken esque elements to him, oh. and uh, I I think uh, I think I think Paul Dano is amazing in this movie, and it, it's it's really hard to to see anyone else actually play it. I think Sonny Soldier probably could do it, but not as good as Paul Dano. All right, all right, I like that pick, Zach. Uh, I'm in 100% agreement with Todd. Watching it this time, Paul Dano was the best part of this cast. He's amazing. Maybe Ezra Miller could have done it in 06, but it wouldn't have been... He would have, he would have tried so hard. The key to Paul Dano is how much he underplays everything. Um, and a lot of young actors, I think, would have missed that. He's great in the movie. I think clearly the highest war performance. Uh, the one I went with is uh, the one that... Zach mentioned earlier being underutilized and that's Tony Collette. Uh, I think, I think she's amazing in this and it's a role that she is underutilized because 
you could see a lot of different people doing it, but no one could do it quite like she does. And, uh, and, and, th- and that's just kind of a, a testament to Tony Collette in general, I think. But, um, but that, that was my highest war. I think this is a movie of very low war performances and it's not, it's not an insult against the actors. Like I think Tony Collette's great in the movie, but I think that role is a very low war role. But when you, when it's, when they're portrayed by these actors, they, they elevate them to being borderline iconic in some cases. I guess, but, but in a movie like this, it makes the war award kind of difficult, except for Dwayne, because Dwayne is, is, of all these characters, the most unique. I don't think we've seen a lot of Dwaynes in other movies, right? Yeah. And that's, so it's, it's not just a Paul Dano, but the role itself is also like just really kind of unique and interesting and specific. Mm-hmm. Are we supposed to think that Dwayne painted that Nietzsche painting thing on the wall? Because <laughs> like, it, it looked like You're it was not talking like a because of Frederick Nietzsche. <laughs> Far out. <laughs> Far out. How many how many notepads do you think Dwayne has gone through? <laughs> what in nine months? <laughs> I mean he like, prob- probably probably doesn't <laughs> well yeah, he probably doesn't communicate a lot with his family. So like Yeah, I, th- I think they've just kind of re- But if he's in school, yeah. right? Like he's in high school, he just <laughs> how would he how is that gonna work? <laughs> you know great question. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it could probably work well in the pandemic, right? He could just like communicate over Zoom. That's what I was thinking. He was distance learning. (laughs) Yeah. I think the real question is, how is he going to do it in the Air Force? Like, don't you have to basically communicate when you're on an aircraft through like radio? I'm going to say he he talks whenever he's not around his family. That's what I'm going to say. He said he hates everyone. (laughs) Everyone. All right. Let's move on. Worst performance, Zach. Uh, Oh, shoot. Uh, Worst performance. Um, 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 I did so much preparation for this. Uh, I'm going to go with... uh, Who was the... uh, Who was... um, uh, Frank's lover that he runs into at the gas station? That guy sucks. That was my choice. (laughs) Justin oh, uh, Shelton as Josh. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He, he was pretty bad. But again, I mean, it's sort of a poorly written role, but like really bland, nothing, doesn't bring anything to the scene, just like really unmemorable and uninteresting. Yeah, he's like a caricature of a gay guy. He's got like his collar half flipped. He's like a, like a, the frat boy douchebag almost looking guy. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a bad role, but that was my worst performance as well. Uh, mine, I went with uh, Beth Grant as pa- uh, pageant official Jenkins. Um, the one that won't let them sign up. Um, she was just like everything. And again, it was more of a just a poorly written role, but everything she did was predictable. And I feel like she has played that role about 30 times. Yet I have no idea when I've ever seen her before. Well, she's Helen in Speed, of course. One of the oh, all-time great. Oh, yeah. Karen's and I feel like it's not her fault that's just the role that she was born to play in fact she probably would be the second highest war performance for me in this movie because there's very few other actresses who could play that the next year she was in no country for old men um, basically the same role yeah basically the same role I mean if 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 you're if you got one I mean it's kind of like 
she's kind of like the Sinatra of this movie. She she's got one speed, and that's all she can do. And uh, so, if she's cast to do the one thing she can do, I mean, is it really a good performance? That's what I'm going with. See, I get the first person ever to compare Beth Grant to Sinatra. (laughs) (laughs) I get confused between Beth Grant and Lois Smith. I feel like they're the same actress. Now, which one's Lois Lois Smith? Smith. She's in Twister. Yeah, she was was Aunt Megan Twister, and uh, she was the the head of the school for Lady Bird. They look nothing alike. I well, I get them confused. They're like the, they, they play. They have a corner on that market in every single movie. They they've probably been paid quite well over the course of their career. Paid. paid I, a lot I of think you're saying that just because they're in both Speed and Twister. That's uh, true. That's yeah, I'm sure Yandi Bont cultivated both their relationships quite a bit. So yeah, yeah. All right, amazing, Larry, Big Tim, High Roller Award for the best minor character. Uh, I am going to go first on this one, and there there are so many good ones. I, I feel like we should also have like uh, like on on the side with this is um, favorite. Oh hey, they're in this moment from this movie because there's so many moments of oh hey, they're in this. Um, but uh, the one I'm going to go with as my favorite minor character is Wallace Langham as Kirby, the guy who runs the uh, the tech for for the Little Miss Sunshine pageant. Uh, especially when he's the only one that's willing to applaud Olive's dance because he loves the music and he's Except never for the, like the biker dude. Again. Except for the biker dude who's like 30 seconds late. Um, yeah, so uh, that one. And then um, the one that I was like, oh, hey, they're in this that I like. I remember hearing, you know, Cranston's in this. I remember hearing Dean Norris is in it. But uh, when um, when I see Paula Newsom pop up as the woman with the papers, at the hospital trying to get them to fill out everything. And I'm like, Oh, Hey, the, the cop from Barry is in this. I I was like, I was like, that's awesome. She is great in uh, that role. Yeah. She, she was perfect. And she was again, playing the exact same character she plays in Barry, basically. Um, She said she's like uh, a grief counselor though. That's what, Right, so what she says she is. I no, know. she was a liaison uh, to the. Um, she had a really specific uh, bereavement liaison. That was yeah, but title. it was it was here. But here's all the paperwork. Here's this paper. Here's this paper. Here's this paper. And it's like, well, we need to do this. And then she snaps at him. I'm sorry, you're not going to be able to do that. <laughs> it's like that. That that's yeah. That was it. Was, that was also. Was like that. I didn't like her character. You you got one black character in the movie, and of course, it's going to be someone who. Is hey, impatient and bureaucratic. That's true. Yeah, this movie was I, a little little white for me. Little Caucasian. I, I just I just liked how it was, it was uh, the, it was it was the lady from from Barry. That's what I liked about it. Anyways, all right, Todd, how about you? Uh, my favorite character is uh, Julio Oscar Machozo as the mechanic because yeah. He, uh, like the movie depends on moments like like his, like his moments like but he's a mechanic and he basically is like okay hey you can get a running start i won't have to work on your car or get your money i'm going to help you get out of here so i don't so and he's awesome like he may, it makes no sense why he would actually do that and he even shakes his head when he sees them actually pull it off he's like like i can't believe they actually did that but i mean he got paid nothing for that but he is kind of a quirky little character though i, I thought it was funny that's a good call He's maybe the most likable character in the movie because you're right. He goes out of his way to help them when he doesn't really need to, and 
He's a forthright, honest mechanic, which is pretty weird and unusual to find in movies. So here's that. Since when are all dealerships closed on the weekends? That was well, weird. The, the, the shop is usually closed on the weekends. Okay. Not the dealership necessarily. Zach, how about you? Uh, for me, this was an obvi- the, the most obvious award. It is Matt Winston as the pageant MC. He sings America the Beautiful. He gets why did he sing though? <laughs> we don't know why he sings. It's kind of perfect though. Uh, he he really gets into his role, and um, yeah, you know, I, I the pageant is creepy enough without him, but uh, he just really is like icing on the cake. And uh, I guess I want to know more about that character, but I really don't. And um, he probably should have been played by Jack o- Jackie Earl Haley in Little Children, if you know what I mean. I mean, there's just like a really <laughs> discomfort, uh, just a vibe that is like, wow, I just didn't even want to go there with this movie. I mean, this movie, I guess like it was kind of sold this movie as being like more of an edgy comedy than like an episode of Everybody Loves Raymond. I mean, you got stuff in here about like pedophilia. You got stuff about eating disorders and homophobia. I mean, it's definitely got some edge to it. I, some of that stuff has not aged as well as some other stuff. But like that pageant MC character is just so creepy. Maybe today he could have been played by Paul Dan- Dano. That, that that would actually be kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, the Riddler. Yeah, that is his number one most known for on IMDb is Little Miss Sunshine pageant MC. Probably no one no one wanted to cast him again. They were just too creeped out. <laughs> I do uh, love that it's America the Beautiful. That seems like the song that would be sung at beauty pageants, <laughs> not the national anthem. Yeah. All right, Todd, you're first for Stickman and Douchebag. Stickman and Billy Bat's Douchebag. I'm doing both of them. You're doing both. Okay, well, the biggest Stickman is, of course, Grandpa, because, I mean, he was getting it in at Sunset Manor so much that he got third-degree burns on his Johnson. There's there's no other way to describe a Stickman than that. And uh, the biggest Douchebag, I mean, there's a lot. Uh, I, I, I'll go with... Uh, so when uh, they have their first stop on the road, um, Greg Kinnear gets out and he gets on the phone and then there's a semi going behind him and the guy honks right when he sees that he's on the phone. That's what I'm going. That that semi-truck driver is the biggest douchebag because that's, that's, a, a that's just a dick move. That That is a good call. That is a good call. Shout out to, uh, to low-key favorite minor character, the random dude who uh, lends, lends uh, Richard the Vespa to go <laughs> to go find, you think he to go find Stan Grossman. Like he doesn't have any money. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> All right, uh, Zach, Stickman and douchebag. Okay, uh, the biggest stickman in this movie, obviously Grandpa. I can't really. There's really no one else. Um, maybe maybe Larry Sugarman, but I, oh, I damn it, that was Grandpa, my pick. Grandpa's the better pick, though. <laughs> um, Josh, Josh, uh, you know he's he's a stickman. It seems like. Uh, well, I, yeah, okay. Um, I was going to go for my douchebag uh, as uh, a uh, Cheryl's sister um, because she couldn't take Olive to the beauty pageant, even though she took her before. It seems sort of like an unkind gesture. So I don't know. Seems kind of like a douchey thing to do, especially when this family has, let's see, a, a patient, a, 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 someone who's just uh, attempted suicide and a grandpa. And a son who is not talking. It seems like a lot to kind of throw at them to do this last. But minute. they had their equestrian trip. 
already planned out in like Napa or something. <laughs> Lame. Feels like something Ron, Wendy, and the kids would do. Just kind of throw it off, and the twins would do it. Just kind of throw it off on uh, the sibling character. Uh, so yeah, my my uh, stick man was uh, was Larry Sugarman. Um, that, that it's was a great stick man name, though. I mean, <laughs> it, it, is. Almost, it almost wins just on the basis of the name. By the way, I thought that Larry Sugarman was a character in a Coen Brothers movie, just like Stan Grossman was. But it, I was actually thinking of the character of Cy Alderman from uh, a uh, simple, uh, s- simple a ser- a serious, ser- man. serious man. Yeah, yeah. But I thought they had done two shout-outs to Coen Brother movies. Uh, my biggest douchebag is the pageant MC. But I mean, you could well, go with some. What about the pageant douchebag. official? Well, yeah, you could go yeah. with that. Um, I, I, there, there are several you could go with. I was also thinking of going with Jeff Mead as Biker Dad because until I saw in the credits that he was billed as Biker Dad, I just thought he was some creepy dudes hanging out watching little kids pageants, um, which would be weird, but you never know. And then uh, yeah, I, I thought I never thought that he was actually a parent. That's weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that he he's listed as Biker Dad in the credits, um. And then uh, uh, Richard is a douchebag. Yeah, how are we I mean, missing that? I mean, <laughs> he's he he might be. We're we're all trying to come up with the cute choices, but Richard is the douchebag. I mean, Greg Kinnear made his his career off of this type of role, and this is probably the greatest douchey role that he ever had. I never there... saw. I didn't see the movie where he invented the the the, <coughs> uh, the uh, windshield wipers, but maybe he was a douchebag in that movie too. Not, not really. But is there a douchier moment of like the last twenty years in movies than him guilting his daughter into not getting her waffles a la modi? Um, because because that that doesn't go into his nine steps. I in mean, fashion on a mood. Yeah, I mean that that's like the douchiest moment like of all time is him him convincing her to not eat ice cream. Because she's going to be a beauty pageant contestant, that was that was ridiculous. Um, yeah, yeah. He's he, and you could also kind of go go Stan Grossman too. Um, and and just just kind of the culture of that whole idea of. It's so funny because you know, Greg Kinnear's character is so like married to this idea of his program, and this is his thing. And and Stan Grossman is like, come up with something else. I mean, we got it. We got to come up with more things, and and then you get your name out there, and then you'll have your big hit. And it's like, no, no, this is the thing. Like, no, no one has just of the thing. It's it's if you're gonna do this, you got to come up with more and more stuff so you can sell yourself. It yeah, and that's what he's trying to get into. I also found it really funny how he's the motivational speaker that's trying to get people's lives together yet um the best moments of like life advice come from grandpa and from frank like like grandpa has uh, like one of the most sincere moments is when he he when he doesn't get it and he comes up to him and he goes you try to do something different you try to do something on your own and even if it didn't work i'm proud of you and that that like that that is better than anything greg kinnear says in the entire movie and then there's a moment where uh where Frank is talking to uh, to Dwayne about Proust and how all the all the struggles in your life uh, 
make you who you are. Because if you if you just skip skip high school, think of all the suffering you're missing, man. <laughs> yep. And uh, yeah, it, it, I find it funny that the worst one in the entire movie at actually giving advice is the one who's trying to do it for a living. Which makes him even more of a douchebag. <laughs> All right, what's the best scene in the movie, Zach? Oh, the opening fifteen minutes. I've already said that. Like that that dinner table conversation is a great scene. Always oh, the chicken. Yep, that is a great scene. Chicken, corn on the cob, salad, and sprite. And I like how they, they all have the different uh, cups that don't match. I thought that was a good touch. Uh, my, the one I wrote down was uh, the scene where Dwayne realizes he's colorblind, um, and I think and and he speaks for the first time. I, I think that that is the most like emotional raw moment of the whole movie, and um, and Olive fixes it just simply by going down and sitting next to him and putting her head on his shoulder and no words need to be said. That's all that needs to happen. And I, I thought that that's just a brilliant scene, how that plays out. Yeah. But you know, what doesn't work about that scene watching again was the fact that Frank is the one who tells him we well, can't go to flight school if you're colorblind. Like, first of all, that, that immediately inserts him as a nominee for biggest douche in the movie, but it's also feels like something he wouldn't say. That feels like a Richard line. Why isn't Richard saying that? Like, that's such a horrible, douchey thing to say. It seems very out of character for that character. But the thing is, Dwayne's putting that together in his own head. Like, I, I thought of this, too. And my wife actually mentioned it as we watched it also. It's like, man, why did he say that? He didn't need to say that. And like, Dwayne's figuring it out. And he's looking at him with this. That This means this, right? And, and Frank just just confirms what's what's already rolling around in his head. No, it's just Frank's a, no BS. I mean that that's that's hit that's what where he's at the whole time. Yeah, and, and Dwayne and Dwayne is smart. Like I mean, and that and Frank even says that he's like you're not nearly as as dumb as you look, you know? Because I mean he I mean he he reads like philosophy books and shit like for fun, and he's 15, but he he understood right right when he realized that he what yeah he, he knew exactly what he was what he was running into. And no, it's not lazy writing, Zach. That's what you're gonna say. It was lazy writing. Come on, that should have gone through another draft. Like, you got to just hammer it home to the audience. Like, come on, there's a there's a clever there's a more clever way of of letting the audience know that his dreams are dashed than have this character who up to this point has been entirely sympathetic to Dwayne, you know, cut his dreams. I don't know. I just didn't like it. I thought that kind of ruined the moment. I thought it worked. I thought it worked. It was a great scene. Todd, what's your best scene? It's the, it's the scene at the hospital with, you know, the 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 lady from Barry and stuff leading into them stealing the body, which is the most like Wes Anderson kind of thing in the in the whole movie. It's like the just the sight of them like picking up the dead body and like shoving it out that little window and uh, like Steve Carell looks like a Wes Anderson character doing that. When he whenever he runs, I feel like he's out of, in a Wes Anderson movie. And, uh, <laughs> You know what I Almost thought about? Like Darjeeling limited kind of shit, you know? When but, I, yeah, him, I, I love that scene. When I saw him run, I was reminded of Michael Sarah and Superbad. <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit of that. That's, why that's a fast kid. <laughs> <laughs> Holy bleaker? Oh, that, that's Junior. Wrong movie. It's the wrong movie. Okay. 
So are we doing um, the, the category we did last last time? If there were a sequel. If there were sequel, a sequel, what would it be? Um, I I think uh, if there were a sequel, I want to see the sequel be entitled uh, Little Miss Chili Pepper, and it'd be a prequel on how the hell did Olive take runner-up in the regional uh, beauty yeah, pageant? only two people. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Diet pills, right? They had to suspend. Yeah, they the... Had to, they, yeah the other one got disqualified for diet pills. But yeah, how, how the hell did she take second? And and nobody well, and what, what knows. was she doing? Because she hadn't even gotten her routine down yet. And so what, what, what did she do at the other contest? She showed up. I don't know. That that's I, yeah. But that that's what I want to see. Either that or or just simply follow Cheryl's sister to like to like their equestrian finals or something. It's a terrible pick. <laughs> Todd, how about you? Oh, it's got to be Grandpa at Sunset Manor. Yes. Like it, it, it seems like uh, it's almost like the Sandpiper storyline in Better Call Saul. Uh, I mean, it's also in Albuquerque, which is kind of weird. But it also would be like the Savages, the you know the Philip Bosco character. I feel. I mean, I, I would love to see what Grandpa was doing at the at, at Sunset Manor and what what actually made him start like starting heroin. He and if he actually was getting it in with all the other all the old ladies, that'd be a that'd be a fascinating movie. That would be fun. That would be fun. Yeah, yeah. I agree 100% with Todd. You, I think you would have to have Blythe Danner and the late, great Olympia Dukakis in the movie somewhere. Um, but to be a little bit different, I would also say that another possible direction you could take it is the love triangle between uh, Frank uh, and uh, Larry Sugarman and the grad student, Josh. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, that already was a movie. It was called A Single Man with Colin Firth. That single, serious, stupid, yeah. whatever, single, whatever S adjective, man. but the one where he's the gay professor of the 1960s. I mean, that that basically already got made, but uh, well, I guess the, fe- the female version of it was Notes on a Scandal. That's true. Someone, Some, someone has died. died. <laughs> it also feels a little like the great also nominated for screenplay in 06. Or Breaking Bad, but minus the gay part. What part? The gray, oh. the gray matter. Oh, yeah, stuff. a little bit. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. And Elliot gets the gets all the credit, the genius grant, whatever. Yeah, that was going to be one of my other trivia questions. Was name another movie character who has won a MacArthur grant? Can you think of one? I don't. Did you have one? Yeah. Well, the only other one I could John think Nash. of was uh, no. Uh, it was uh, uh, Adam was Driver's for. character in Marriage Story. He wins the MacArthur grant right before oh. uh, he gets the divorce papers given to him. Okay. That, I, that is a great I went on like a, a great one. 30 minute deep dive about what the MacArthur grant is. You can't nominate anyone. It's like a secret nomination process and you get like $600,000 over 5 years for like doing nothing. I mean, you really don't have to do anything. Wow. I think our, our someone should, can we get a, a listener out there that can nominate our podcast? I think we're <laughs> making a great contribution to the arts and I think so. letters in this country. I think so. I think so. All right. Flaws, outdated conspiracy theories. I think conspiracy theory is a fascinating topic to talk about with this because you have Stan Grossman who showed up in Fargo, which we just talked about not that long ago. Um, And it's an Albuquerque with Brian Cranston and Dean Norris. So, I mean, I I think it's, what is it, Officer McCleary? I think you could easily say 
um, is is going home and uh, and brewing some Schrader Brow in the uh, in his downtime. So that there there are so many random little things that you could you could tie into this from different movies. But uh, what did you guys have? Uh, I don't know. I mean, for conspiracy theories, I don't, I'm not really sure. I mean, I guess like the, the pageant assistant lady reminded me of Scotty J in Boogie Nights with how seriously mm. she was taking her job at, uh, at a, you know, going to get the, the contestants or whatever. She pops up in a lot of things. I, I know I've seen her face in a lot of stuff. I just can't actually figure out who, what she's actually from. <laughs> So uh, I saw some of the parallels that Terry was talking about with uh, oh yeah with uh, uh, Breaking Bad. I saw with Sideways. So we have not only is it a road movie in the Southwest, but um, you know the the scene with the, the getting the pornos at the gas station. Um, although not apparently this month's edition of Barely Legal. Um, well, we and, also- and then Todd, you missed it. I, I mentioned in the uh, in the trivia that. Uh, that uh, Frank ordering the blue raspberry smooth uh, slushy reminded me of uh, Miles ordering the uh, spinach croissant. Yeah, exactly. He, he said it with the same uh, with the same vitality. <laughs> it was a blue raspberry slushy. Yeah. <laughs> we also have a moment in this movie that did actually make me laugh out loud. One of the few moments that I chuckled, which is when George W. Bush makes an appearance in this movie, very similar to make, how he made an appearance in Sideways on the TV set. Um, and then I just thought of one, which is that Sideways and Little Miss Sunshine are the only two movies that I've ever heard of where someone refers to their dick as their Johnson. Maybe that's a little crass, but like, I've never heard that. Exp- I've never heard that used before as a euphemism for someone's penis. What Johnson? Yeah, it doesn't it, it, remember Jack like, has Austin the line. Like, well, I, I don't. Maybe it's been in Austin Powers. I don't know. But but Sideways and Little Miss Sunshine, the only only movies that I can think of where where it's referenced in the dialogue. Top Gun. You haven't seen Top Gun. That's true. Maybe there are other movies, but notable Academy Award-winning comedies from the t- mid-2000s. I don't think Juno ever used it. What, what, what's, the line, what's the line in Top Gun? It's like, it's like oh, oh, um, Slider's asking Goose, whose ass did you have to kiss to get in here? And he said, well, the list is long and distinguished. And Slider's response is, yes, yeah, so is my Johnson. <laughs> See, that is not Academy Award caliber <laughs> dialogue. <laughs> When well, Austin Powers, has... it's it's when they're using all the euphemisms and like I think it was Clint Howard's character is Johnson, like it looks like a long, hairy Johnson. Yes, sir. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. No, I I saw I I watching this I I thought sideways a lot as well, in that there was something to just the tone and vibe of a mid '90s independent comedy. That it made me just say they don't make movies like this anymore. Mid two thousands. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what I meant. Mid two thousands. Um, with 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 how the score sounded, to how it it was just kind of this road trip movie. Apparently, even Thomas Hayden Church was originally offered the role of Richard, and he turned it down. I saw. Um, but uh, it, it was it just kind of had this vibe that was very similar to a vibe you get from from watching a, a movie like Sideways that I, I never noticed before, but it just had something that mid two thousands indie comedy dramedy 
thing. Okay, but what if this movie had a different title? Because the Little Miss Sunshine is a weird title and makes it stand out. But this could have easily been called like Meet the Hoovers or something like that. And it would be it would never it wouldn't have gotten the same acclaim just because of the title, right? Like this is a this yeah. is a, uh, this is a movie because it's got a unique title. Not I mean, but I don't know. It's got all the same beats as, as like a lame 2000, you know, summer comedy, but it's an indie movie and it's got a cool title. So I can see that. Yeah, the title definitely plays plays a role in its uh in its popularity. I can see that. One thing I also noticed about, about like or one thing I thought of, but when they leave Olive at the gas station, all I could think of was in Almost Famous when they leave Jeff Beebe behind. Cuz like that's the whole reason why they're going and they can they can't even remember the can't remember her. Oh yeah, the, don't mind me. <laughs> I'm easy to forget. <laughs> I'm only the lead singer. <laughs> also, the, the turn radius on that Volkswagen van is is just unbelievable. Like, I don't know how the hell they were able to get into that that hotel's parking lot. Like, he, he whipped around at like fifty, like on a on a dime. I was like, damn, how'd that thing not tip? <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that, that should have tipped several times over. All right, let's uh, let's wrap this up. LVP MVP. Todd, you're first. Uh, LVP is, I mean, uh, I think Dwayne would agree. Uh, beauty contest because life is just one beauty contest after another. And uh, the MVP, I, I said it before, the casting directors because it's just an amazing group of actors. And even finding someone like Abigail Breslin to play that part is uh, just unbelievable. Whoever those casting directors are, yes. I should have looked it up, but I didn't. All right, Zach, LVP, MVP. Yeah, the LVP of this, I'll expand on Todd's a little bit. Beauty pageants such as the Academy Awards, because I would like this movie more if it just hadn't gotten any recognition by the Oscars in a year that had stronger movies. My MVP, though, is the Volkswagen van for the reasons that you guys were just saying. Like, it's uh, it's iconic. It's in the poster. If you're going to, like, do a, you know, most F Jack Black, like, you know, uh, ma uh, making fun of this movie or recreating it, then you have to have a yellow Volkswagen van. It's the most iconic thing about this movie. And uh, it's definitely a character in the movie as well. And I like when the door just breaks off at the very end of it. It's like, it's just, it's just been through so much. Like, and then he just, the and then the crawls, a dead sprint. <laughs> it's almost like you don't even know if he's actually going to the hotel or if he's just trying to get the hell out of there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, looking at the poster behind your head right now, Todd, I'm thinking it, it's it's featured kind of in a similar spot as the bus in the Into the Wild poster. Conspiracy and, theory. Conspiracy Actually, theory. It, it was that a VW bus as well? No, it was an actual bus. Oh, you're right, it was an actual bus. I, I was thinking the same thing for a second there, but it was it was an actual bus. Can you think of another movie where there is a VW van? The only one that I can think of is uh, it's it's what uh, Bridget Fonda drives in Jackie Brown. Or I guess Robert De Niro drives drives it, but that's where he shoots Bridget Fonda. I think in Jane's Silent Bob Strike Back, I think like the, I think they they're in a van. They they end up riding in a van some some point. I don't know. I want to say there's one in Forrest Gump, probably. Mm. That that sounds, sounds right. Familiar. All right, uh, my LVP is uh, fried chicken. Um, again, again with the fried chicken. I think, I think it didn't even look good. Yeah. Uh, and my MVP is Abigail Breslin 
Um, I was thinking about it as I was watching this. I don't even know if she deserved the Best Supporting Actress nomination. However, she's the one that makes this movie. Because this movie would, would be nothing if you didn't have that character that you just rooted for and you believed in 100% at the heart of it that wants to be a beauty pageant contestant. Someone who, looking at her, you realize she is not what they look for, what you look for in a beauty pageant. And she makes this movie because of that. And she's the one that gives it the heart. It is that she's at the she is the heart of the whole movie. Um and yeah, it's and easy to her, forget that. They use her enough. Like if she was the main character, this wouldn't have won an Oscar for original screenplay or something. Like you can't tell from the perspective of a child and be an Oscar movie, but they use her enough that she's still a main character. And you see things from her point of view at times, but she's not the one you follow necessarily. And yeah, she Yeah, she's unbelievable. She one of one of, one of the best child performances. That I can remember. Yeah. Yep. All right. Let's wrap this up. Quote of the day, Zach. Uh, I have two quotes. I was looking up some uh, some quotes online. The 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 I was looking up some Greg Kinnear quotes, and I actually found one by Nietzsche. It was kind of curious. It was like they almost knew that maybe you were looking up Greg Kinnear because of uh, Loomis Sunshine. The quote by Nietzsche is, to live is to suffer. To suffer is to find some meaning in the suffering, which sounds like something that should be said in this movie. And then the quote I found from Greg Kinnear on this very same page was, uh, I've always thought Mexico City was incredibly dynamic. <laughs> All right. Dynamic. Key word. All right. Well, uh, well my quote uh, comes from Greg Kinnear also, but it's Greg Kinnear as as Richard Hoover here, and uh, and it is um, I think it describes this podcast in a lot of ways. It, it it's simply sarcasm is the refuge of losers, and in that case, I think we're all pretty much losers here. <laughs> well, following oh, I your... didn't know that really, really. How much do I owe you for that little nugget? Oh, it's on the house. <laughs> That one's on the house, bud. <laughs> All right, Todd, wrap us up. Well, and Greg Kinnear also says in the movie, which also could describe this podcast, and definitely that movie is, all right, everyone just pretend to be normal. <laughs> yeah. Nice. That, that's your quote? Yeah. That's your quote. Nice. I like it. I like it. We all quote Greg Kinnear for quote of the day. Is this a this is the first actual Greg Kinnear movie we've talked about on the podcast? We just bring him up constantly. We should try and get Greg Kinnear on the podcast. That would be a get. That would be a get. We should get Adam on that. Anyways, all right. With that, we're gonna draw this podcast to a close. Thank you guys so much for listening. Make sure you check us out all over the internet. We are on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, uh, Spotify, Pandora, YouTube. Um, we'll be back at you next week with, uh, another episode until then have fun watching movies and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your cross behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.